So this evening is the last evening Dharma talk for those of you who are completing your three weeks of practice. And it's quite in the middle of the retreat for the other half of us who are here forever. And I'm hoping that my voice will hold out to give a talk tonight. Often when I give Dharma talks, as many of you know, I like to tell personal stories and read poems and do um, the kinds of teachings that invite one's body and mind and heart to open. For this evening's talk, I've chosen instead to tell a story, a long story, because I believe it fits well for those who are leaving, and because it is the story of the Buddha's last year of life and his last teachings, I believe also that it will hold and carry those who continue with a certain inspiration and understanding. And it's felt in this week that I've come back to the retreat and really respected the depth and stillness of the practice you have all given yourself to. Listen to the teachings of the other teachers here. That in this first long retreat, we are really carrying the transmission of the four foundations of mindfulness and the four noble truths and the three characteristics and living them more and more deeply each day. So this is the story of the Buddha's last teachings as given in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. much the way Eugene told the story of the text the other night. It's a story that describes in 50 pages the Buddha's last year of life and teaching, so it's sort of history. But it's also a great myth, part of one of the great myths of humankind, the myth of the Buddha, the story is one of our human greatest heroic and wonderful stories for thousands of years. And if you read the texts, sometimes people awaken through deep meditation as you're doing. Sometimes they awaken in dialogue with the Buddha where he would look and say, is this your body? Do you own it and will it follow what you tell it to do? No. Well then, are these your feelings? Do you own them? Will they follow and do what you tell them to do? No, sir. Well then, is this your mind? Do you own it? Will it follow when you tell it what to do? Why no, sir? Then perhaps you own none of these things. Yes, sir. Then who are you? And in that moment of looking, that person would awaken in that dialogue. And sometimes the awakening would come as the Buddha told a story. So here is this story. And because it's a myth, it's also in mythological language. It begins, thus have I heard, which is like once upon a time. And it ends with the phrase, and this is how it was in the old days. So you know already you're around a great fire out in the darkness and some story has been passed down to you for a long, long time. Once upon a time, 
on Vulture's Peak, you know all those vultures that fly around here, this was in Vulture's Peak, above the great forests of the plains of India, forests filled with trees and tigers, now in the state of Bihar, which has been deforested and is very poor, but then was rich with animals, plant life. Once upon a time, this story begins. And it's a story that tells both how to practice after the physical Buddha has disappeared, guidance, and how to live wisely in the world, carrying the Dharma. And it does this by setting up the image of a kingdom a kingdom of justice and compassion and respect. So here's the Buddha on Vulture's Peak with 500 or 1,000 followers, which means basically the mythological number for many. And the minister of the king of Magadha arrived, sent by the king to inquire of the Buddha should we make war on the Vajians and take over their kingdom? He bows to the Buddha and asks him, should we make war our kingdom on the Vajians? My king has asked me to come and inquire. And the Buddha seated there turns to Ananda and says, tell me Ananda, Do the Vajians meet in harmony? Do they break up in harmony and carry on their business in harmony? Do the Vajians practice the teachings that have been authorized by their ancient traditions and elders? They do, sir. Have you heard, Ananda, that they respect and revere and salute the elders among them? They do, sir and that they do not forcibly harm the wives, the daughters, the weak in the society, but honor and respect those who are weak. They do, sir. And that they revere and respect the woods, the trees, the shrines of nature, and the fields of nature around them. They do, sir. And then he turned to the minister and said, so long as a kingdom meets in harmony and breaks up in harmony and follows the ways of their elders and cares for the weak and the poor among them and honors and respect the land upon which they live, so long will they prosper and not decline. The minister bows and takes the message back and then the Buddha talks to the assembled monks and says, my friends, I will tell you the same thing. So long as you too meet in harmony, speak in harmony, break up in harmony, so long as you follow the teachings and trainings given by the elders, so long as you honor the elders among you, and do not fall prey to desires, so long as you care for those sick and weaker, so long as you preserve your personal mindfulness with faith and modesty, so long will this dispensation of awakening prosper and not decline. And so he begins by talking about how we preserve the Dharma and what makes a just society, which is one's own personal mindfulness and attention and respect, virtue and caring for others. We might well look at our modern society and say, so long as what? Elders, nature, virtue? we might wonder about how long we will prosper and not decline. But in this Dharma community, these are the same principles. Now, as I teach this myth or this story, 
I would also like to ask you some questions so that you listen and hear it with your heart and reflect. But the only people I would like to have raise their hands are those who are here for three weeks and about to leave. The ones of you here for six weeks can sit and listen at ease without troubling your discriminating mind. <laughs> now, why is it that the Buddha didn't look at the minister of the king of Magda and say, war is a bad thing. War is terrible. You should not make war. Why didn't he do that? And instead he taught in this way. Any of you leaving have an idea? Please. Well, we hear they just were greedy and they wanted to take over a kingdom. Why didn't he tell them not to? He said because the precept shouldn't be taken literally. Perhaps at times that's true. Because I believe, I'll give you my answers to these questions. I believe that the Buddha didn't want to set up an ideal that there shouldn't be war. He looked at the world as it was. And even that needs to be related to, because there is, there was war and there is war. Instead, he focused on the causes of war. It said that those who are wise, those who are foolish, see just the effects. And those who are wise see the causes. And so rather than saying war is bad or don't kill, which he does often other times, he said, if one lives wisely, then this will not be the conditions for war. So he was giving a teaching even then about how to live. Hmm. Then the story goes on. The gist of it is the travels, the announcement of his death, the last disciples and last teachings and how to carry on his last meal and so forth. So from there on Vulture's Peak in this year of travel, they go to Nalanda and Pavaraka's mango grove. And there in this mango grove, they're seated under these wonderful mango trees. And Sariputta, the chief disciple, turns to the Buddha and says, there will never be a better, never be a more enlightened teacher on this earth than the Blessed One, the Buddha. And the Buddha turns to Sariputta, the wisest disciple, and said, do you know the past Buddhas, Sariputta? No, sir. Well, perhaps you know the future Buddhas. Well, no, sir. Well, then perhaps you know the mind of this Buddha completely and utterly. No, sir. Sorry, Puta's kind of stepped out on a limb, hasn't he? And the Buddha said, then explain yourself, Sariputta. And Sariputta says again, in the spirit of a myth, if there were a great city surrounded entirely by a mighty stone wall with no hole big enough in it for a cat to get in, and there were one single gate, the entry to this city. And at this gate sat a wise man who knew all comers, skillfully those who would harm and those who would bless the city and kept out those who should not come. This city would rest in peace. Just so the teachings of this Buddha and all Buddhas rest in the gate of mindfulness. Mindfulness itself, wakefulness, is called the abode of the Buddha, the abode of the awakened one. And if one rests in the abode of the awakened one, in this moment, in the eternal present, then all that needs to be attended to is attended to, and liberation 
is realized. As Rumi says, what is this fuss we make when we will all go one by one through that same gate? We're all going to the same place. We've come from the same place. And so here, Sariputra speaks of the mind of Buddha like your mind, resting in the eternal present. And then the story carries on. They wander with a company of friends and come to the Ganges. And they come to the Ganges River, which is swollen, and there's someone crossing the river with a raft. And the Buddha says, stop, my friends. See this great river? The teachings are like the raft to carry you to the further shore from difficulty, entanglement, and pain to freedom and liberation. And then he turned to them and said, but my friends, after using such a raft to carry over, would it be wise to take that raft and pick it up and place it on your shoulders and carry it with you saying, oh, wonderful raft of Dharma, it has taken me across the river and carry it everywhere. And of course the followers said, no, venerable sir. And the same would be said to you as you leave or even as you stay. Use the raft of the Dharma, but don't carry it unnecessarily. Use the practices to liberate yourself, but spare your friends and family. from bringing the raft into the middle of the living room. (laughs) What a wise and wonderful teaching that the teaching is to liberate and not to be held on to or imposed on another or ourselves. So then they carry on for some time and the Buddha begins to feel sick. I'm very sympathetic to that. Weak, but he girds himself in this story and says the time is not yet right. And finally, he sat to rest under a great tree in the forest. And seated there, Mara, the evil one, comes to visit. You can't have a story without Mara, really. Mara is what makes, drives the plot, you know. You need Mara. And what's interesting is that Mara comes many times after the Buddha's enlightenment. If you look through the text over and over, I don't know if Eugene mentioned this, he likes to talk about Mara. So. <laughs> Mara is a friend of his. <laughs> and each time Mara comes, at some point, He slinks away saying, oh, the blessed one knows me. He sees me. He knows who I am. But this time Mara comes and he says, oh, I see the blessed one is getting sick. He said, may the blessed one take final nirvana and leave this earth. Because in the past, when I asked the blessed one, was he not ready to leave this earth? He said, no not until there is an order of monks and nuns, lay women and laymen, and the teachings are established, and beings who are awake with virtue and stillness and wisdom and freedom, until that is completed and passed on to many beings, can the Blessed One leave. Well, now you have done so, Blessed One. You fulfilled those. And the Blessed One said, I see you, Mara. And you need not worry, for not long, in several months, the Blessed One will take final nirvana. Now, why does Mara keep coming? Anybody got an idea? Why is this in the story? Come on. 
somebody, please. Temptation keeps coming. This is not a description of an ideal world, but this is really the description of the human realm. That even when you're the Buddha, Mara continues to come and visit. You all, many of you probably know Thich Nhat Hanh's story of Buddha taking tea with Mara. Oh, my old friend Mara, come in. I haven't seen you for a long time. How have you been? Oh. Terrible, it's so hard being the evil one all the time. <laughs> but somebody has to do it. So this is showing that this world is joy and sorrow and light and dark and pleasure and pain and Buddha and Mara. And it's just how it is. And can we find a wise and compassionate heart in the midst of all of that? And then when the Buddha said yes in not many months, there was a great earthquake, terrible, hair-raising, thunder. And Ananda came running and said, what's the cause of this earthquake? And the Buddha said, there are eight reasons for an earthquake. You know, he was such a list maker. The powerful movement of the earth element or the water element or the conception of the Buddha, or his birth, or his enlightenment, or his turning of the wheel, or (coughs) his renouncing this mortal life, or his death. And Ananda said, oh dear. And the Buddha said, yes, not many months have I left. And Ananda weeped and begged and said, many times you said you could live a long, long time. And the Buddha says, oh, my body is like an old cart held together with straps. And Ananda said, yes, but you said a Buddha could live for a long time. And the Buddha said, you never asked me to. And I gave you many hints. If you had only asked me three times for when we were in the black snake pool or Jivaka's mango grove or the deer park in Rajgir, or the cool wood at Tapoda. I told you that a Buddha could live long if he were asked. And you, Ananda, never asked me, and the fault is yours. (laughs) You have ignored the broadest of hints, and now it is your failure. Imagine that. Talk about guilt trip. Now, this is a very interesting moment. Okay, why would they put this in there? Anyone got an idea? Any of the three-week people? Please. Mm-hmm. So that awakening doesn't come from outside, it comes from the, the intention of those who wish it. Yes. I extend this further. Mm. I believe that this really talks about the teacher-student relationship, things not being outside, that it's not one way, that even between the Buddha and Ananda, it's not just that the Buddha teaches and Ananda gets it, but that we are in an interdependent relationship and we take responsibility for one another. And that to awaken, it's not my saying something or you're doing something, but somehow in concert, we awaken together. Do you understand? And that's what we do here. So it's a real wise teaching about the not being one way a two-way responsibility. And in fact, later in this very same sutta, just before he dies, the Buddha praises Ananda for his care and sensitivity and timing and beauty and the remarkable qualities of his speech and his guidance of those who know him. So the Buddha loves him, but in this place, something else is being taught. 
And in each scene, then, oh wait, in each scene, then, when the minister leaves or along the river or with Sariputra, when they break up after wandering with a large company, someone leaves, the Buddha said that phrase that Eugene spoke of, now it is time for you to do as you see fit. Each time someone leaves. Why is this? What do you think? Now it is time for you to do as you see fit. Yes, please. In the back. Skillful means we have the teachings to use in different places. Thank you. I was going to say something similar that the teacher teaches and then one has to examine it for oneself and put it into practice. Examine for oneself. And even more fundamentally, building on what you say, no teacher can do it for you. Even the Buddha cannot let go for you. No one can love for you. No one can awaken for you. They can say, here, awaken. Oh, yes, thank you. But we, in the end, must do as we see fit. It puts the responsibility or the possibility of awakening where it is in our own heart. So then the word gets out, the Buddha has only a short time to live, only some months. And people begin to worry, who will be our guide? And they gather together as a Sangha and ask this question. And the Buddha says, I will place no one in charge of the Sangha to replace the Buddha. Instead, let the Dharma and Vinaya, the teachings and the precepts, be the guide. And be a lamp, be a light, be an island unto yourself. And how shall you do this? By contemplating with mindfulness this body, these feelings, this mind, and knowing when there is grasping, you will also discover when there is freedom. And they went on, well, how can we know what are the true teachings after you're gone? There are four common ways to know. In such a community, heard from the lips of a teacher, heard from the community, heard from the circle of elders, heard from some respected master. All these who say, I have the teachings of the Buddha, you should not approve or disapprove, neither follow nor abandon. But instead, if those teachings have as a part of them, this is virtue, acting with integrity and not harming any beings. This is peacefulness, the quieting of the heart and mind. This is wisdom, the seeing clearly. And this is liberation, if they have those as their center, they are the teachings of the Blessed One. And if they have not, they are not. Consider only if they conform to the gist of the Dharma that you know to be true, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the spiritual faculties. Then you should follow them. And if they do not conform to what you know in your experience to be the essence of the Dharma, then leave them and do not follow them. And if you follow even the first practices of virtue, there will come beauty and wealth and respect and you will sleep easily and die contented. But if you miss even that step, 
The perils will be of loss of reputation and respect and sleep and confusion. Make sure to build your practice on this ground of integrity, of virtue, and all else will follow from that. And then the Buddha wandered further resting, practicing. Travel became very difficult, yet his heart was at peace and came to a large, beautiful forest grove and sat there with 500 or 1,000 followers. And the courtesan, Ambapali, beautiful, dressed in the finest silks and perfumes, with a retinue of followers in the best carriages, came to this forest and alighted and walked to the grove on foot. And the Buddha roused and instructed and inspired and awakened her to the teachings of mindfulness, a dignity of seeing things as they are, seeing when they are closed and when they are open, when the mind and heart is contracted and when it releases, and discovering in the midst of that the possibility of freedom in any moment. And Ambapali was awakened and bowed to the Blessed One and sat to one side and invited the Buddha and all his followers for a meal the following day, and he agreed. And then as she was leaving, the nobles of Lichavi came. And they came dressed in blue, and dressed in indigo, and dressed in yellow and white silks with great adornment and royal carts, horses, elephants, banners, colors, and extraordinary makeup. And they sat with the Blessed One and were roused and inspired and instructed and awakened. And they too invited the Buddha to take a meal in their town. And the Buddha said, no, I have already accepted an invitation. From whom? From Ambapali. Oh no, they shouted, that mango woman, which was slang for their women of disrepute. And they raced after Ambapali in their chariots and offered her a hundred thousand gold pieces for the meal. And she said, not for the kingdom would I give up the blessed one and serving him. And they ran back to the Buddha and asked, how could you have given the meal to a courtesan? Why did you do that? And he looked back and he said, because she asked first. (laughs) So why is the courtesan in here? Anybody got an idea? This is reminiscent of Jesus, yes. Why is she here in this story? Anyone? um, For the Buddha to acknowledge that Awakening and virtue are possible in all of us. For the Buddha to acknowledge that awakening and virtue are possible in all of us. Who can practice? What are the values of the heart of an awakened being? There is no race, no caste, no class in awakening. Awakening is the nobility of the heart. So in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, when they whisper in your ear as you're dying, they begin by saying, O nobly born, to everybody, O nobly born, O son or daughter of the Buddha, you of noble race, because you are a follower of the Buddha, you have a nobility, you are nobly born, you have this Buddha nature. Listen carefully while I give you the last teaching. And it was a very important thing in the teachings at that time in a racist society that the Buddha said, no race, no class, no caste, but the nobility of heart that is there in every being is what I teach and speak to and awaken. And finally, at Pava Mango Grove Forest, 
finally the story goes on, there's much more, but finally the last meal is offered by Kunda the smith. The best hard and soft foods were prepared, and the Buddha ate the special plate of food that no one else ate. And then he became terribly sick, and it got back to Kunda that the Buddha was sick unto death. And can you imagine having given the last meal to the Buddha, thinking you were the one that poisoned him, food poisoning, dysentery, whatever it was, and now he's going to die. And poor Kunda was nearly suicidal. And then the Buddha sent Ananda with a message. He said, there are two meals in the life of the Buddha that give the greatest merit, blessing, benefit and power. The one right before the Buddha's enlightenment and his very last meal. Do not worry, Kunda, because your intention to give this meal has brought you much merit. So why do they put this in the story? Pretty obvious thing. Anyone? Please. Um, maybe to show that it's your state of mind uh, with which you perform your actions that it's important not to result. Exactly right. This is the teaching of karma. That you can take a knife, you know, and cut a person open with it and have them die as a murderer and make a certain karma. And take a knife and cut a person open and have them die as a surgeon who's trying to heal them. The same physical act of cutting open the body with a knife, the same result, the person dies. Entirely different karma. The karma is created by the intention of the heart. And here the intention was to serve this meal respectfully. So it's the teachings of motivation as the key to our practice as we sit and walk. Just the sincerity is all you need. And it's the key as you leave to being attentive to the heart. And then the Buddha sat in a forest glade under a tree and went into a state of deep meditation. And 500 carts passed and crossed over this stream. And after them, came Pukusa, a wandering ascetic, who saw the Buddha looking so blissfully and sat next to him, and the Buddha awakened and said, Oh, blessed one, I'm so glad to see you after all the dust and noise of those carts so peaceful. And the blessed one said, Oh, were there carts? Was there noise? Hmm. He had pretty good meditation. And then he said, I am thirsty, Bukusa. I am ill. Fetch me some water from the stream. And Bukusa said, oh, the carts went through. It's muddy. It's undrinkable. And the Buddha said, fetch me water. Go and say a few words over the water. And he gave him a few words to say. Bukusa went, said the words, and the water became utterly clear. And he dipped a cup of this clear water and brought it back. You know, if water's cloudy and you put alum in the water, remember that from high school chemistry, college? It clears it, everything settles. Magic crystal. It's said that the Dharma is like the magic crystal in the mind. When you place the Dharma in the mind, the thoughts and desires and fears that we identify with are there, but the mind gets spacious, mindful, open, and then gradually it settles, and you see the mind for what it is. And then Bakusa came back, and he was inspired. So here's the Buddhist showing him that it's possible to live beyond all the changing conditions the form of the body, that there's a reality beyond all of this. And he bowed and the Buddha gave him teachings 
and roused and inspired him to understand the timeless Dharma, independent of what comes and what goes. And Pakusa says it's as if you set up what had been knocked down and pointed the way to one who was lost and brought a lamp into a dark place so that those with eyes could see. I now see the world of all the changing form and the freedom in the midst of it. And he offered him robes of the best golden burnished cloth. And when the Buddha put these robes on, his skin and his body glowed bright with a golden hue. So the Buddha turns to gold. Why is that? Anybody have a sense of why they would, what this image is in the myth? golden robes and then the skin of gold. Gold is the symbol for royalty. It's precious. And part of what it symbolizes is that it's malleable, can be changed into all kinds of forms. But even more wonderfully, it cannot be tarnished. It remains bright and shining and unalterable. It doesn't, as a metal, it doesn't mix with other things. And in this way, the gold becomes the symbol of that which is unborn and undying, which is pure or royal or noble in the heart that's not confused by the things of this world. And then things got worse. And the Blessed One experienced great pains and severe bloody sickness. So this tells the true nature of the human form, doesn't it? That sometimes we'll be healthy and sometimes sick. And that it's natural that no one escapes this cycle of change in the body of aging or sickness and death. So here's the awakened one, just like everybody else. Great pains, severe sickness. And he lay down in the lion's pose between two sal trees. And even as he lay down, the lion's pose is wakefully on one side, on his right side. The trees blossomed like springtime out of season. And then he said, Ananda, Please move to the side, for the devas and angels of 10,000 world systems have come to pay their respects to the Blessed One. Let us give them a little space. The angels of purity and the angels of kindness and the devas of radiance and peace and beauty and goodness. Why do they have all these angels? What do you think? First of all, because it's true, <laughs> probably. But why else? Wherever there is a nobility of heart, there is a beauty, even in the worst circumstances even severe bloody sickness and pains, if there is a nobility of heart and character, there is beauty present and everything reflects it and knows it. And it's true for you as well as you sit or walk or go. The trees bloom. But then Ananda complained and he said, do not die here. Do not die, it's in Kusinara. 
do not die here. Go to Kosala or go to Benares, to one of the great cities. Do not die in this miserable backwater daub and waddle village. That's what it says in the suttas. That's from someone's Anthropology 101 translation. Remember what daub and waddle was. It's houses made of mud and sticks, right? Don't die. (laughs) Die in this backwater, this miserable place. Oh, blessed one needs to die in some noble place. And the blessed one looked up and spoke softly. Ananda, do not call this a miserable backwater. For once upon a time, here we are still, once upon a time, long ago, there was a king named Mahasudasana who on this very spot had the palace. He was a wheel-turning monarch who had a great kingdom across this world that was prosperous, that was well-populated, a kingdom of justice. And it was never free from the sounds of elephants and carriages of gongs and symbols of cattle and commerce and joy. And from this very spot, great roads stretched in each direction, north, south, east and west. And the kingdom of Maha Sudasana went on and on. And therefore, in this great spot, I will die. What do you think this is about, someone? Please. Beautiful. That every spot is the still point of the turning world. And any place of Dharma, any place of that nobility of spirit, becomes the center of the kingdom of righteousness, the place of justice and compassion and respect and freedom can be just where you are. And finally, the last visitor, a wanderer named Subhada, comes, a monk, wants to see the Buddha, and Ananda says, no, no, the Blessed One is very ill. But the Buddha, in his compassion, says, one more has come, let him in. For this Dharma I have given is open-handed, and he teach, teaches Subhada the noble path of suffering, its cause, the relinquishment of suffering, and the path to that freedom, the path of attention, of mindfulness, of moment to moment, letting go and awakening. And Subhada awakens, and the Buddha turns to those assembled around them, of him, and says, any last doubts about the way? And no one speaks up. And he says, I have shown the way. Then all of you be of good resolve, all of you nobly born. For if you practice wisely, the earth will never be free of enlightened beings. Remember, all created things are impermanent. Be a lamp, be a light unto yourself, and with ardor and attention or mindfulness, find your own freedom. And with that, he closed his eyes and went through all the highest states of meditation and was released from his body into the unborn. Truly there is a reality where there is neither the solid nor the fluid, neither heat nor motion, 
neither this world nor any other world, neither sun nor moon. And this I call neither arising nor passing away, nor standing still, neither being born nor dying. Independent of all changing conditions, this is the unconditioned. This is the end of suffering. All the changing conditions as one sits and walks and retreat, or one leaves and the conditions change. If we cling to and identify to those changing conditions, we will be lost in suffering. And we all do it regularly. When we see them for what they are, changing conditions with mindfulness and compassion, we can rest in that which is unconditioned. And remember, be of good resolve, be a light, be a lamp unto yourself. The Dharma has been given open-handedly for you to practice. And at this moment, tens of thousands of devas and brahmas of all the realms were there, and many of the devas wept, and the sky rained flowers, and the earth shook thunder. And many who had not completely overcome their clinging began to weep and cry among the monks and nuns and tear their hair and throw themselves down on the earth in grief. And some did not weep, the arhats, the fully enlightened ones. But then the arhats began, some of them, to grumble and complain. (laughs) And they turned and they said, don't you know that all created things are impermanent? Didn't you hear the Blessed One say that just a few minutes ago? (laughs) Don't you understand? And still the monks and nuns who were not fully awakened wept and tore their hair and threw themselves down. So you can picture this scene, the ones who were calm and saying, just his body, you know, and others, no, no, the Blessed One has gone. What brings this scene to us? What's so important about this scene? Anyone? Please. Mm. Even if we understand for mm. us, we, it seems to me, we... Yes, yes. And in this scene, we have the embracing of the opposites of the universal, that all things die, and the personal. Yes, but he was my Buddha, and my teacher, and my friend. It's like Marpa, the great Tibetan sage, when his son died. And he was weeping, and the disciples said, but you told us, Marpa, that it's all illusion. And Marpa said, yes, and the death of a child is the greatest illusion of all, and continued to weep. Or Zen Master Isa, who wrote these few lines on the death of his daughter. Dew evaporates. And all our world is due, so dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. And so in this scene, we have the awakened heart and the heart that grieves, and both are held in the death of the Buddha. Happy Buddha, sad Buddha, sun Buddha, moon Buddha. 
It's important for those of you who are leaving the retreat, as you go, there may be bursts of, oh, I'm free, three weeks are over, I can do whatever I want. I'm gonna go and have a, you know, chocolate milkshake and, and that little dot, 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 you know. But then a moment later you may step out in your car and get on the highway and feel terribly sad because it's such a beautiful opportunity to be present here. Such support, such love from others around you, the grass of the springtime and the silence to feel it. So the sadness is fine. The letting go is also fine and necessary. You can't hold on to some state you have here. If you learn anything, it will go with you in your being, in your heart, and not from holding. It's there. You can trust that. And those who are free, those who are most awake, did not weep. It is like when Ramana Maharshi, the Indian sage, was dying. And the disciples around him said, Please, please Ramana, please Bhagawan, don't leave us. And he looked at them with great compassion and some confusion and said, But where could I go? Where could I go? When you leave in another way, you're not leaving. You're just yourself. And more sights and sounds and smells and tastes will come. And you can be in that gateway, the abode of the Buddha, the center of things as they arise and pass, the reality of the present. And for those of you who are staying, the instruction you have had in the Dharma is just to live more and more deeply in that freedom. So a great funeral was held. And according to the Blessed One, all the Buddhas of the past were treated like the remains of a wheel-turning monarch. And 500 layers of soft cotton and linen were wrapped around them and their bodies were placed in a great iron pot and perfumed, and the finest sandalwoods were placed underneath, and the devas began to sing an incredible angelic song. And 500 monks circled the body of the Buddha three times with their shoulders bare, led by the great Mahakasapa, and the fire ignited itself after the third time of their circling and perfumed water rained down from the heavens with flowers and the earth yet again shook. And after this great fire was completed, a stupa was built in Kusinara at the crossroads, a huge peace pagoda with roads going out from it in every direction in the world to show that from this spot peace was taught to the hearts of beings everywhere. And the ashes were given to all castes and races and classes and directions to take to stupas of their own. And that place is honored and this story, the life of this one man, the world honor one, is respected and praised and celebrated to this day. For in another way, the Buddha was never born and he never died. And when you hear this story, the Buddha is in the room with you, in his Dharma body and he bows to you and invites you and your friends and this community and this earth to awaken. For if we long for justice or beauty 
or compassion. If we long to find freedom in the midst of this world, the way to do so is now clear. The Buddha is here and has offered these teachings. And if beings practice rightly, wisely, with attention, then the earth will not be free of enlightened beings. The Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And that is the end of the story. Let's sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.